Hello, this is the Black and Asian Therapist Network podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal, psychological world from a Black and Asian perspective. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of Black and Asian people in the UK to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their Black and Asian clients. The speaker for this podcast is Luke Daniels. He spoke at the 2010 Barton Conference. Luke Daniels grew up in Guyana, where he married before coming to London. He has many years of international experience as a counsellor, trainer and consultant on issues related to domestic violence. He has worked at the Everyman Centre in London, a project that aims to help men change their angry, violent or abusive behaviour, and has been deeply involved in the co-counselling movement, which is about reciprocal peer counselling. This involves what is called re-evaluation counselling, which is the process of freeing humans and society as a whole from distress. In his talk, Luke Daniels speaks passionately and knowledgeably about working with perpetrators of domestic violence. He speaks from his many years of personal and academic reflection about his own past of violence, including domestic violence towards his wife, causing the end of his marriage, and his current work with perpetrators of domestic violence. Whilst doing his work with men, he has found three common themes they all share, which are that these men have been hurt themselves, either physically or emotionally, that sexism is strong in their lives, and that they want to be in charge of women. All three of these themes being the legacy of how they were parented during their early lives. With this in mind, he encourages us to bring up our own children without violence. Just so you're prepared, there are incidences of swearing. Here is Luke Daniels. I don't know about you, but I'm very excited to be doing this. Um, it's just so wonderful to be in a room full of black people who know where I'm coming from. You know, we got some idea what our experiences are like. And the little exercise you did early on about people identifying, you know, where they've come from. Just hearing this, some Guyanese, it just made me feel, oh, I'd love to be at home to just talk to my people where I can, you know, talk any old how and, you know, I know everybody will understand everything I'm saying. And I ain't got to worry about, you know, what is happening. Um, and hearing you, Val, and you talked about expertise, and I think that was so important. In some ways, my book is... In some ways, me accepting my responsibilities and recognizing that I am an expert. Um, I've got some expertise around working with perpetrators of domestic violence. And I decided to write this book, um, Pulling the Punches, Defeating Domestic Violence, um, mainly because I felt there was a need for this book. Um, I had done some work in South Africa where I was training men to actually work with perpetrators. Um, I've worked in England. Um, I've worked in other countries, in, in Dublin, um, working with perpetrators, training men. And I know there's a great need for this work to be happening. There's not enough places for um, men to get help with the healing, another word that you mentioned quite a lot. So in the book, there's a lot of talk about you know, healing from your own heart. So there's exercises. There's been some challenges. Um, how are you going to actually counsel somebody? How do you write a self-help book? And that's what it is. It is a, actually a self-help book for perpetrators. And I had to grapple with this, you know, many times. I felt like giving up often. 
Um, and I should share with you, it's taken me just over 10 years to write this book, so it's been long in the process of coming out. So when Eugene asked me if I would talk about it, you know, it was yes, you know, I had no doubt <laughs> that I would be up here. It's, it's been a long process. Um, and like I said, along the way, there's been those challenges. Um, you know, people say, you know, will it be dangerous, you know, for, for women if women think that these men will read this book and that they're healed and that it will actually change them? might not be a dangerous thing. And I said, yes, you know, there is a, there is a danger with this book because, you know, it is very challenging. It challenges this, the society that we live in because we've had to look at the oppressive system we're in. So it is dangerous, but, you know, it's dangerous in the sense in that it might actually change something. It might actually make something happen. Um, and for me, yes, it is a dangerous book. Um, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but I also, you know, I'm responsible in the sense that, you know, I have to think about the safety of women. So there's warnings in there for women to, you know, that this book, you know, don't think it will straight away change your man into, you know, that beautiful human being that you're looking forward to getting to know. But um, it will help in the process. And I think encouragement along the way is really good. Uh, yeah, so in the working with the book, um, the challenge of actually... Uh, getting this book to bring about change. How do you, how do you effect it? You know, we are counselors. You know, most of the work we do is face to face. You know, people get to know you. People get to know something about your worldview. You know, um, you know if you're a person-centered counselor, you will share something about yourself. You know, you will tell them things. And I, for me, it's the way I've always worked. So that's been the challenge. So. Sometimes for a whole year I haven't written. There's times when I've paced the floor just excited that, you know, this stuff is coming out. My God, did I write that, you know. And, um, then there's times I've put it aside for almost a year. I haven't looked at it. Six months, you know, another period. Um, so it's been not without emotional cost. And I've put a lot of feelings. I've put my life in a book. And in, in a sense, though, encourage the, um, to be as a role model in some ways for, for men in the book. I think that was important. And also as a way of giving them example of the kind of stuff they needed to work on. So there's a lot of sharing about my life in the book, and I thought that was important because for the perpetrators I work with, I definitely want them to be open and honest with me and tell me about their lives, you know, and I need to do the same with them, I felt. So it's a very open book in that sense. I, sh I get to share a bit. And maybe I'll just read a, a little piece which I felt kind of brings that point out because the first questions I get asked usually by almost anybody in doing this work, you know, how did you come to it? Why are you doing it? Hit my wife some long time ago. We were married for 10 years um, when that happened. So I'll just read. I made a decision during one of my sessions always to interrupt domestic violence wherever I saw it occurring. Well, I had a busy six months doing just that and seriously wondered how it was all going to end. The first time was two weeks after making a decision. I was, was returning home one evening with a friend when I small crowd at the other side of the road. A woman was lying on the pavement with a man standing over her in an aggressive manner. I suspected what was happening and had my friend quickly stop the car. I got out, ran across the road, knelt beside the woman and inquired where she was hurt. I could see that she was really frightened as she pleaded, please don't let him take me with him. 
This is, you know, when I was speaking to the woman. Um, the man, meanwhile, was busy having a row with the people, people who had gathered, but he soon turned his attention towards me. Who the fuck are you? Doctor or something? Man, I was on the ground there. I raised my hand, signaling stop to silence him as he tried to find out from the woman if she needed medical assistance. He continued his confrontation with the crowd. I could see no obvious injury, but she was clearly very afraid to go with this man. I then stood up, and as he faced me, I said, she's hurt and needs help and won't be going with you. He went ballistic, raising his voice even louder, demanded, who the fuck do you think you are trying to take my woman? This was a big square up now. We were head to head. We were standing eyeball to eyeball. I only had to nod to deliver a headbutt, but it was but my height, and I had never lost a fight to anyone my size or weight. So I was not about to be intimidated. He won't think that now. It used to be a vicious fight. <laughs> By this man who had clearly been drinking too much. He eventually backed off when he understood that I was not afraid of him, nor was I going to budge an inch. Shortly after, the police arrived on the scene, and he was arrested for possessing a dangerous weapon. I then learned from the crowd that they had tried to intervene, but he had pulled the knife on them. Um, and that was one of the many interventions I made, not all ending in, in good stories. Um, the book has been out. A few people have read it. And the feedback generally has been very good. And for me, one of the, 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 the feedbacks that I've got from somebody I didn't know was that, um, how did she put it? That, okay, yeah, this was very readable. The book was readable. Um, and that she could understand it. I actually get it, you know, she said. And... Um, and that it had helped her to deal with her own demons. And this was, and this was a, the chapter on addictions that she was talking about. This wasn't anything to do with domestic violence. So um, in writing a book, all this for perpetrators, it's like, well, okay, what are the reasons for, for, for people using violence? I've had to examine this question very deeply. Um, and especially is the violence from men coming to women, which is the majority of violence that's happening in the world. Um, although, you know, something like one in four women will be, you know, will experience domestic violence. It's more like one in six men will. So it's not too much difference there. But the majority of real serious hurt is going to happen to women because men perpetrate that kind of violence. So in looking at trying to find the root causes of domestic violence, there's a chapter looking at it. And one of the books that certainly helped me a lot is um, the creation of patriarchy. I don't know if anybody's seen that one. Um, but I've got so much information and so much, and I delved into that to look at some of the causes and you know what's been going on for some time. And obviously, from my perspective as a co-counselor and working with um, the reasons why people behave badly, um, clearly, you know, the early hurts that we experience has got something to do with it. So in working with men, is about trying to figure out what is going on for them, giving them information, at the Everyman Center, we were very different from most other um, centers working with perpetrators at the time in that we offered individual sessions. We did <coughs> 10 individual sessions um, and we did group work after the individual sessions. Um, some of the projects only did group work. And we felt that was very lacking um, and it's not surprising the thing that most of those projects are known for is the dropout rates that men just leave those projects as quickly as they can. Um, we need individual sessions, you know, as a counseling process. You need to find out where that person's been hurt to, to help them. And for me, in the 
the years of experience I've done this work is, you know, three important things have come out for me. And one is that, you know, men have actually been hurt themselves. And much of that is, you know, early on being hit and smacking. So the book is very anti-smacking of children. I think a lot of the hurts get laid in them. And what I discovered was the men who were prepared to use um, indiscriminate violence that it was might break bones or something. You know, those are the ones who were beaten up really badly. And the ones who had been maybe smacked in a more controlled way that some people think is okay, um, you know, tended to be much more controlled in the violence that they used. And of course, those that were abused emotionally and psychologically perpetrated that kind of abuse. You know, there was a clear link to early Bambi, the, the way they were <coughs> treated themselves um, early on in life. So that was one of the key things. The other thing with most of the men for me was the sexism that was there, that, you know, they felt that, you know, they should be in charge. They're, they're in control of women's lives, you know, and if she didn't do what she was told, you know, it was kind of okay to use whatever necessary to, you know, to get her to toe the line, as it were. So that was a key piece looking at the sexism looking at the hurts. Um, and the other factor that was there for me is controlling behavior, something that, you know, if you think about it, um, where most parents do, most adults around children, you know, it's about controlling. And one of the things I've wrote a book about in here is that, you know, one man I actually heard in the bus um, actually told his child not to sneeze. You know, a child sneezes and, you know, he says, oh, you mustn't sneeze. And how can you not sneeze if you want to sneeze, you know? So it just, for me, is an indication of the level of control we exercise over children. You know, when to sleep, when to eat, when to walk, when to wake, how to play, what to wear, you know, what to do. You know, and it's all there. And men learn these controlling behaviors, so they want to tell a woman how they can dress, you know, how they must cook, when it must be ready, who's, which friends they might have, and so on. So looking at the controlling behavior for me is, was very key in working with perpetrators. I'll give you another snippet from um, another part of the book here, and uh, talking about uh, the oppression of women. The capitalist system has deliberately manipulated gender issues to facilitate the exploitation of workers. Keep women at home to produce, to produce a future workforce and have them service the worker for free has served capitalism very well. Even when women joined the workforce, their work was valued less and paid less. Women have struggled long for equal pay, and the struggle goes on despite the trade unions, Congress backing equal pay for women nearly 90 years ago. 90 years before Barbara Castle on the 42nd attempt was able to force equal pay legislation onto the statute books in 1975. 1975. Some 34 years later, women are still waiting to be paid the same as men for doing the same work. Despite the Labour government giving companies five years to adjust to the legislation at the time. In 1974, they said you got five years to adjust to make sure you can pay women equally. The government was accused of undermining the spirit of the law in 1993 by blocking moves to simplify them. At the time, they claimed that the reforms would cost jobs. This resistance to treating women with equality persists as the present new Labour government finds it unnecessary to enforce a pay audit on companies, trusting that companies will do this voluntarily. This ploy to yet further delay payment runs against all reality. 
as a survey by the private sector union Amicus found that only 50 of the 6,000 forms questioned were prepared to carry out equal pay audits. It is an injustice that the average man in a full-time job still earns 100 pounds per week more than the average woman, according to the Office of National Statistics report in 2005. This despite more women now being better qualified than men. I did say I'll ask for people to just give me a, a page number let me turn to and read something. So, 40? Uh, yeah, let me see that one. Oh, this is the first session. The first session for perpetrator. Um, what brings you here? This question often brings up all the memories of the incident. Take time to answer and... Uh, you know, this is an exercise for the perpetrators to do. Take time to answer and to notice any feelings that may surface as a result of, re of reviewing the incident. If there are lots of feelings expressed, sometimes by crying, it is a good indication that you are ready to begin the healing process. It is important that you feel about the things that you do that cause pain. I encourage you to be open and honest with me in your sessions, uh, for it will help you to change your behavior. In every session, I ask about your feelings. This is to get you accustomed to thinking about and expressing your feelings, and it helps me understand what is going on in your life at the moment. I'm sorry that you have done these things. They are not acceptable. You can change this behavior by making the decision to change and keep working at it. And the next paragraph is, many perpetrators try to minimize the violence they do. The perpetrators who have been able to make rapid progress with stopping their violence are the ones who are able to face up to their actions. If you can face the fact that your actions cause pain, it will help you to stop your violence. Talk of it being just a slap or just a push or just words is to try to minimize your actions and not accept responsibility. Being in denial will not help the process. What may seem like just a, to you is hurtful to another person physically and emotionally. So don't minimize your acts of violence as you tell your story. Exercise. Begin the healing. Stop to think about and feel your last act of violence, remembering not to lay blame to allow and to allow for feelings. If you are living with the one you hurt, you need to think about how you are going to make the situation safe for them. And I went on to talk about the um, six uh, feet safety, safety rule. So I gave them practical things to do in terms of safeguarding women. Okay. Another page? Page 80. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, this one is, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, this here, I'm talking about um, the way socialization for violence happens and the way men are pushed into fighting and so on. And so I talked a little bit about, you know, the place that I grew up with. My friend over there might know about Agricola. Uh, the guy in his own look back. He's, um, Agricola was one of the roughest villages in Guyana. And it's the place that I grew up. It was really tough. You know, we had a boxing school in there and so the boxers, the bad men in that village, you know, people um, usually would have to be a gang coming in to take out some one person and, you know, these guys were so tough they didn't have gangs, you know. <laughs> you know, they were individuals. They, they, it was, you know, they'd be taking out six men and that kind of stuff, you know, with a cutlass or something, really not easy. So I was talking a, a little bit about that. Okay, so me and a guy, we'd had a little truck well, he threatened to chop me up, and so this is the page you got me to. I was actually encouraged by the sight of John approaching with his friend. He couldn't be that fearless then, I reasoned. The bad men in the village where I grew up were loners. They never ganged up on anyone. I also felt I had the right to use any means necessary to protect myself if ganged upon. 
I had learned the hard way never to reach for a weapon unless I was prepared to use it from a fight with one of my brothers. And during one of our many fights, I had picked up a plank of wood with the intention of warding him off. He also grabbed the length of wood and immediately delivered a blow <laughs> to my hand. I was reeling in pain and nursing a swollen wrist for days, but I had learned my lesson. John enters a waiting area, saw Fazia and me, and came straight for us. I was leaning against the handrail. They used as a partition for patients queuing to collect their prescriptions. He stopped about six feet away and pulled out his pocket knife, opening it almost casually. Let's finish it now, he said. I don't know what he was expecting. He seemed so casual and self-assured. Maybe he thought I would run, apologize, beg or something. I could not believe his arrogance. I had my 10-inch dagger concealed as a in a newspaper which I had folded in a sheet for the blade. I had pinned it with my left forearm to the handrail against which I was leaning, with the handle in the easy reach of my right hand but concealed from John. While I was not wasting my breath, I quickly drew my dagger, took one stride with my left foot towards John and plunged the dagger straight at his chest. I was surprised. I could not believe I was so close and had missed him. He had reacted defensively much faster than I expected. His feet, and that was the end of your page, I'm afraid. <laughs> you have to get a book. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it goes on. I'll take one more page. Seven to seven. I grew up in a, in a rough village where the socializing for violence was relentless. My role models were the hard men of the village. My toys were guns, knives, swords, arrows, and bow, which we mostly made ourselves. I was often hit by my parents and had regular fights with my siblings. We loved westerns and violent martial arts movies. We fought a lot in school and on the streets. I sometimes even left the classroom to have a fight. But most fighting was done at break times. Sometimes teachers did their best to stop us fighting. And when it came, became more difficult to have a fight at school, we arranged fights after school, away from the teacher's gaze. When James, not his real name, joined our school, he came with a reputation, and the other students wanted to see us fight. He looked tough, and I definitely was not looking for a fight with him. Maybe he made the same assessment of me, for we never fought but became friends. James and I used to practice headbutts after school. We'd bang, we'd hit our heads like that. Was, you know, I'm probably a bit brain damaged from it, but <laughs> standing toe-to-toe, butting each other on the forehead. After we finished school, secondary school, James went on to build a reputation as one of the baddest men in the country. Damn, and this was my schoolmate friend that we used to fight a lot together. But he did go on to... Um, I think he just, I don't know, something went wrong with him, but um, after we left school, he just decided to build a reputation. And, you know, in a space of two weeks, he'd stabbed somebody, chopped somebody, done something, so, you know, everybody knew to fear him. And that was, you know, my sparring mate. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, there's several books in there. There's an tr- introduction that rarely goes into uh, lots of research material and so on, facts and information and stuff that would be useful. Anybody actually working in the field of domestic violence and other related issues as well. Um, there's a chapter how to use the book, which um, is how I got around. How do you actually consult somebody in a self-help book? Um, the Roots of Domestic Violence, I mentioned. There's a chapter on men's liberation, and this, I think, is 
I would need to say a lot about that, and I must say that you know men are oppressed in the society, not by women, but by the society itself and the culture and so on, and especially the way we're forced into the army, kill or be killed, and the socialization for violence. So the book is very much anti-war, and I've spent. It probably was the largest chapter and was getting quite out of hand. I had to curtail it so much. I got, you know, that war just was driving me mad. I was just writing so much about it. I could have written a separate book on that. Um, women's liberation, because, you know, without you know, the oppression of women, certainly is one of the things that's key about women being abused. Um, giving up addictions is a chapter, I mentioned some, a little bit about that. Um, some of the men were actually addicted to um, alcohol or drugs. Um, but I've also included other addictions, um, and one of those is pornography. Um, and this I'm really pleased about because with a young man I'm constantly at the moment, I've given him the book to read. You know, and he's come back. When um, I was doing a relationship counseling with him and his partner, and he disclosed that you know he was addicted to pornography. And so for him, you know, this is something he felt he, you know he had to change, and it was really important because it was contributing to some of the bad feelings in a relationship. So yeah, um, and parenting, of course, you know, if we ourselves don't heal from the hurts that we endured. As children, it's very difficult to become good parents. And um, so a whole chapter on parenting and looking at the issues around that. Uh, most of the men who perpetrate, sometimes they profess to love their partners. And so there's a chapter on relationships and looking at love and relationships. Um, how can you hurt somebody that you claim to love? So we've looked at that. Yeah, we had a look at parenting and early socialization for violence. Much of the oppressive patterns of behavior we learned as a result of mistreatment and misinformation received as children. Those that have studied this issue for many years are very clear that violence breeds violence. So I hope that you will raise your children without the use of violence. We also looked at the way addictions contribute to violent behavior and have done some work on giving up addictions. For some of you, your relationships have ended, but you will go on to have other relationships. This final session, I hope, will stand you in good stead for having relationships free from violence and based on true love and respect. I have learned a lot from you in the process, and I wish you every success in your new nonviolent life. Thank you. That was Luke Daniels talking about his work with perpetrators of domestic violence at the 2010 Barton Conference. Thanks for those of you that have emailed me with their comments and thoughts. Please keep them coming. It's great to hear from you. If you're feeling inspired, why not record your comments about any of the talks or the podcasts in general on your phone or on your computer and send them to me for inclusion on a future podcast. Just to let you know that Barton is running a training in London on cultivating mindfulness on the 15th of September 2012. This will be facilitated by Christine Burgess. If you want to attend, find out more about Barton or send your comments, you can email me, eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk hope you can join me next time when I'll be presenting a recorded talk from psychotherapist Valerie Watson, who
We'll be speaking about the role of the black expert and how in certain situations as black people, we're put in the role of being the experts in ourselves. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>